0: Welcome to the Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about extreme conservation. I'm Jen Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South
1: Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester.
2: And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based
0: in Cambridge. Right, um, welcome to the show. Uh, As usual, uh, let's do some news. So, um, first of all, reminder, we're on Patreon. Uh, If you'd like to join us and get exclusive bonus content and all sorts of fun little glimpses behind the scenes, please come and join us. A link to it will be in the uh, show notes as usual. And now for some real news. Now, it's gathered uh, a little bit of traction in the popular science uh, sections of things that there's been a discovery that some caterpillars eat plastic. And uh, scientists are very excited by this because they're like, oh, this could solve the world's, world's plastic problems. They, cause the Things don't like a plastic bag takes 400 years to biodegrade. And now in a couple of hours, they can eat it, right? That's great. These little things are called wax worms because they're quite fond of wax already. All I could think when I saw you this... managed
1: w- to see the, the silver <laughs>
0: lining of this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Immediately, I looked at this and went... Please don't enter collections. I don't want anything eating plastic as well as everything else. Please <laughs> don't become an IPM problem. Uh, which is a really bizarre and really conservation-y uh, kind of reaction to this. Immediately, knee joke. no! <laughs> don't, don't eat my precious collections. Um, uh, it's probably going to be fine. They're looking more into how they... How they produce an enzyme that will uh, help break down plastic and possibly manufacturing that on a large scale, uh, as opposed to breeding loads of the caterpillars because that would threaten the bee population who is already unhappy. I'm still sensing red flags here. Please don't please experiment responsibly with <laughs> this because I don't want my museum to be crawling with little caterpillars eating plastic.
1: I wonder if we can put that through to
0: them. Like hi, i are going
1: to save <laughs> I, the planet. But, I have a problem um, actually, with this. <laughs>
0: I have a really weird, nitpicky, odd problem about this that might never come up. <laughs> anyway, so a fascinating and possibly, uh, really awesome discovery that I'm also slightly worried about.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Yeah,
0: quite. And then something else that caught my eye and actually ties quite well into our episode is that on the, uh, on Icon's website in the news section, you can now find an article called why conservation students should be thinking big it's written by uh, conservator lucy branch and she's a a sculpture conservator uh, and she is encouraging uh, people to think about uh, new skills that conservators of the future might need so there's a lot of large-scale art going on in the world that will need to be looked after so we're talking sculpture Uh, We're talking stuff stuck to buildings. We're talking really massive stuff. And she says, skills like abseiling and high ropes training might be useful (laughs) to a future conservator. And I absolutely love that. That is so hardcore. Oh, that would be amazing if conservators had to have a bit of circus training, <laughs> or, or you know, they have to do rock climbing. Oh my god, this is amazing! I got really excited about that. I put a link to the article in uh, the show notes because I'm I'm quite excited about that. And uh, that's also a type of extreme conservation to me, where it's you have to dangle in front of an object uh, to actually be able to clean it.
1: That's pretty amazing. They have things like they, well, they they approach problems like that a bit in the science museum group as well that that they have you know, forklift driving licenses. Yeah, and, quite. That's another you know, thing she brings up, that it might be useful to be able to uh, operate
0: maneuver a, a, ch- crane. <laughs> a cherry picker or, yeah. you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So it's uh, taking working at height to a whole different degree, <laughs> yeah. uh, which uh, is fantastic. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I got quite excited about that article. Uh, so I'll, I'll pop a link to that uh
1: in our uh, in our show notes oh, i'm not sure i fancy working at that level of height though i'm not sure abseiling yeah, is really for she me... she
0: does say that even if you're not comfortable with heights now <laughs> don't think that you have to stay uncomfortable with it it's like you you can challenge yourself uh-huh. and get better at uh-huh.
1: it <laughs> yeah i like small things i think i'll keep with small yeah, things yeah yeah and that
0: that's also fine they will also need us you know ground dwelling slug like consultants <laughs> <so> just... <laughs> <laughs> saying that fondly as an archaeological conservator. <laughs> I like the ground. The ground's yeah. really
1: nice. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. Although, have you ever considered underground conservation? <gasps> uh, I was thinking stuff like, what about cave paintings? <gasps> and... uh Uh, You know, they have these amazing underground temples in Malta, for example. Like People need to conserve them, right? I'm writing this down. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting really excited now. But that's also something that would fall under what I would uh, call extreme conservation, which is what we're talking about today. So we're talking about the slightly more out there ways of conserving things. So it might require special skills or uh, might involve extreme conditions. Um, and yeah, it's something that's really interesting to me because while bench work is fascinating in and of itself, it's interesting when that bench work takes you somewhere else entirely as well. Uh, Christina, have you encountered any extreme conservation? Not necessarily done yourself, but, you know, even, um, you know, seen, seen it happen or heard about it or anything like that? <laughs> uh,
2: not, uh, I haven't done any myself. The most extreme I've done personally is a, a gallery refurbishing, complete gallery refurbishing project where we were working in a six-story building that was also being completely renovated and um, so to, uh, there were sort of safe routes through the building which were as it sounds literally the only way you could get from one area to another oh, wow. uh, without oh. uh, falling into a hole where a floor was oh, not wow. be was or where they'd taken a the staircase or whatever so um, you know, we spent the whole time in safety boots and hard hats and uh, high base thefts to get anywhere. Um, and uh, you had to kind of make sure you knew what the current safety was because they'd switch around some around um, from time to time just to make sure things were extra confusing. Uh, but uh, that's about as extreme as I've ever got. But I, I do know people who've worked um, in uh, places that are very hot, places that are very cold.
1: It's something that we really don't need to think about in this country, in the UK. We, we are so rarely I mean we whinge about our weather all the time but we're so rarely beset <laughs> with extreme temperatures yeah Are because it's always pretty ambient like it can be a bit chilly <laughs> but not really so we yeah. don't really have to factor in this adhesive won't work or this adhesive will be too effective in the wrong kinds of ways unless we're sending something overseas to where that is a problem and that's rare enough in itself so it's just, it's yeah I think it's Extreme conservation doesn't even happen. for us have to be all that extreme. It just has to be a bit hotter than we're used to. Yeah, yeah, quite. Yeah.
0: So um I think uh the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna listen to an interview with Kathy Tully, who is um a conservator in a suitcase. And this interview is about a year and a half old. Um but I I think it's so relevant to this topic. So I met cathy uh, in a pub in Cambridge and uh, we had a little natter about what it's like working extremely short-term contracts not having necessarily a permanent home to go back to and living out of used suitcase for a prolonged time doing conservation and uh, yeah it's it's so different to to what i do because whilst my my parents think i'm quite nomadic in that i I move uh, every couple of every couple of years, as for well, they live in one place forever. This takes it to a different degree. It's a it's a kind of a true nomadic life for a conservator, which I thought was super interesting. So uh, we're just going to listen to Cathy uh, and me having a chat. Could you tell us a little bit about your experiences in the last year or so? Where you've been? You've travelled a lot.
3: Well, I finished my degree at UCL in September of two thousand fourteen. I guess it is now, um, and. Worked in Cambridge for a little while, then um, uh visa ran out because I'm American. So trying to find jobs uh, in America when you're just out of uh, uni, it's a little bit hard. And uh, ended up going to Qatar for four months, and then because it takes a while to in so much money to go back to the States, stayed over in the UK, went on holiday, and then went out to Lebanon for about six weeks on an archaeological dig and now I'm back in the UK and um, waiting to work a little bit more um, with the group down in Qatar. So basically what I've been doing, kind of traveling around, mixture of object work and but mostly uh, research. So doing a lot of research on cleaning of um, how we clean, what decision making, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a combination of whatever I could grab uh, in the way of jobs to kind of keep working in conservation. How do you cope with um, traveling for such extended periods of time? I mean, is it, is it tiring?
0: Do you have a, a bolt hole somewhere where you, you always come back to? or?
3: Well, I was lucky enough, uh, so I was in Qatar for four months, and that was nice to be able to just settle down um, and work there for a while. After that, kind of went on holiday for five weeks, waiting for the next job, because it's hard to find something for only five weeks in the summer. Um so basically lived out of a suitcase, uh, traveling around Europe, went back to the States for a little bit, but and then back out to an archaeological dig. So it's exhausting um, flying around back and forth. And I'm from California, so if I go back home, it's an 11-hour flight from at least from the UK. So try to avoid that. So it has been a lot of living out of a suitcase in the UK, traveled around Europe for a little bit with friends. So a lot of amazing experiences, but... It's very tiring, and I didn't expect that. Yeah, and trying to pack in a small suitcase that you can manage everywhere, um, for several different climates, the UK, Qatar, and, um, a dig in Lebanon that's, you know, 40 degrees every day. So it's just, it, it's, I've gotten very good at packing. <laughs> very good at packing in small spaces, um, and meeting a lot of people around the world, and relying on the kindness of strangers, and sleeping on couches and spare beds.
0: Do you find that you have to like buy
3: new things in each country, and then like discard them at the end? I, or... I buy a few. Like Qatar, bought a few because I didn't have enough nice enough clothes. I didn't realize it was going to be an office setting as much as yeah. I was, so I wanted to buy a couple nicer shirts, that kind of stuff, and. Okay. There, I had to discard a mm-hmm. few things, but also I just got better at packing. Nothing's ever not wrinkled, <laughs> so everything comes out very wrinkled because it's packed in so tightly. Um, I wasn't expecting to go back to the states, go back to my parents' house. Was able to do that this summer to celebrate their fiftieth wedding anniversary. So it's kind of spur of the moment. So I was able to drop off some stuff, pick up other things, um, but I did buy a few things like, like oh, need hiking shoes, you know, yes, shoes for. Yeah. For the dig, which I didn't, I had a pair of tennis shoes, but didn't really work the job. So I was able to kind of do those things. Now that I'm in the UK, it's about 15 degrees. It's a little bit harder. Um, So It's a bit challenging even for us who live here. (laughs) Yeah. And after being in 40 degree weather for most of the year, it's just been kind of a shock. So yeah, I do kind of discard a few things, but I also bought really cheap things for like the dig.
0: So I guess that answers uh, the next question about how you handle long-term storage of, you know, your belongings in a way. So you you keep those um, essentially at home in California. And
3: yeah. So my, that's, your, that's your home base. Yeah, my home base is my parents' house in California. I mean, they've been nice enough to store everything uh, in a, several suitcases. When I moved back from the UK, uh, basically, they're still in those two huge suitcases. Uh, how did you end up doing this? Well, I ended up in... Um, Guitar, uh, just because I, one of my professors emailed out a job advert, I guess, for somebody to work for UCL Guitar and jumped at the chance. It was seizing an opportunity when it came across, uh. Had you worked abroad before? Like, you know, in those kinds of countries (laughs) or? I never worked in Qatar in the Gulf, but I did a dig in Jordan before, okay. uh, two of them. And then I did a, a dig in Lebanon, which is actually the dig I went back to in the summer. Absolutely. So um, I was working there. I, again, two years ago when I went out to Lebanon on the stake, it was somebody from the university sent out an email asking for conservation students, went out there for five weeks, did pottery reconstruction, and then my... The boss that I had asked for more people. Um, I wasn't able to do it the year. I had my internship, but I was able to do it this year. So basically knew it was happening, just contacted her say, Hey, I'm going to be free. I'm going to be in the region if she was interested in having somebody come out. So it was really working on the old contacts I had made and just grabbing at anything that just came across. Um, have you found that any skills have
0: been more useful to you than others when you work as internationally as you do? I think
3: the interpersonal skills and being able to be an easy person to work with, and to be a reliable and dependable person, and to get things done, um, and just communicate well. Yeah, I think so that's been probably the best because if you're enjoyable to work with, they'll ask you back. So you know, they have positive memories of you exactly and it's it works everywhere i mean um i mean i'd love to have better language skills but the places i've worked we've all worked in english so just needed to be friendly and reliable and i don't know flexible i think is the other one because that's one of those that always comes up on job descriptions doesn't it (laughs) yeah and it's it's not even just flexible about uh how you do your work and how you approach your work but also flexible on when you're working and when you're going. you know, leave times and uh, just kind of schedules and being able to change really quickly. I and mean, that's something I had to really learn. Yeah, think on your feet and just be willing to change and kind of go with flow. Uh, people have wondered if you feel safe traveling and staying in these countries as a female on your own. Uh, do you have any thoughts or advice on that? Or Sometimes. I think it's being aware of your surroundings and what's culturally appropriate. I mean... In Qatar, never walking out in short skirts and, you know, tiny tops, that kind of thing. So just to be uh, aware, I always felt safe, Um, especially in Qatar, felt safe wherever I went. It's a safe country. Um, You have to take taxis everywhere, which is kind of frustrating, but we always had people we called. So you find people you trust, you reuse them, you really um, build up those relationships as well. So it, it makes the security... Lebanon was a little bit different, um, that I felt a little less safe just because of the instability and not knowing my way around. Starting to feel a little more confident, but we had riots going on in Beirut and we weren't sure if they're gonna spread down to where we were staying and that kind of thing. So, for the most part, yeah, I don't, I haven't really had problems, but, You know, don't go wandering around at night, you know, be culturally appropriate, don't... Use common sense. Exactly. And it's... I haven't really found that it's a big problem. Uh, Do you find that you can save up, uh, or do you find that this is more of a paycheck-to-paycheck kind of thing if you work these short contracts? It depends. It depends on pay. Some places pay well with short contracts. Uh, The Gulf region, I will say, pays fairly well for short contracts, um... You know, digs don't. They that's they, kind of in the nature of archaeology, exactly. The and world, unfortunately, exactly. So you kind of you go through, and you know, for me, I, because I've been basically don't have an apartment, and um, when I do go back to the states, I stay with friends, I stay with my parents. Um, I don't have you know, I don't have utilities, I don't have rent, so which is great. You also don't have a home really to come home to, but I have student loans. That I have to pay. That's been the main thing. So I've saved up the year, I've saved up. I think probably it might change, but it just depends. Um, basically what I make in Qatar is what I've been trying to sparse out for the entire year. And we'll see how long that goes. I'm hoping it will last me for a while till I like get next, <laughs> really, you know, next short-term job. Fingers crossed. Definitely. Exactly.
0: Uh, how expensive is it to travel between these countries? And like is is this
3: something that you paid for or is this something that your employer is willing to help you pay for? I've been really lucky because both jobs I've had. So in Qatar and Lebanon, my bosses have paid for um the flights. Um so didn't have to worry about that and actually coming from California to go to Qatar is a very expensive flight. So that has been paid for. And one reason why I stayed over in the, the UK and Europe is because I didn't want my, my boss in Lebanon to pay for a round trip flight from the US and back. Um, and I also, you know, visit friends, stay on this side of the world. So it is quite expensive just because of where my base is. So, right, but this is kind of a mix of you being a considerate employee and then being
0: quite generous, actually.
3: Yes. Yeah. And my, I mean, uh, do you work with other
0: conservators most of the time, or do you work on your own, or as a part of a team with, you know, a mixed professionals?
3: I think, well, again, it's the two different jobs. Um, working with other conservators, I actually like working with other conservators, mm. instead of on my own. Um, you know, for a research for a university, of course, there's going to be other conservators there, and... Um, working for a conservator on her research project. So it's a a group of people, and then meeting a lot more archaeologists, cultural heritage uh, professionals, museum curators, and then working on site on an archaeological dig. meet a lot of archaeologists, uh, a couple other conservators um, work there as well. So it's it's a mix of people, and you're mixing with all nationalities as well, and people from all over Europe and all over kind of – Middle East, kind of a little bit too, which has been really kind of fascinating. But conservators, mostly. I haven't been working on my own yet.
0: Oh, so, that's good. That sounds sounds like you. You're not lonely or anything, you know. No, it's, it's always no. A, And there's a
3: always team. yeah, there's always somebody else to bounce ideas off of. Oh, that's great. Um, and to work with, and because I've only been out for a year, so I mean, doing research and that kind of thing, that's familiar. But you're working on somebody else's project, you know, you need to work with that person. But working on, you know, on-site, doing objects, it's nice to have somebody else to bounce ideas off of, you know, when you're dealing with circumstances you're not used to, like, you know, 40, 45-degree weather and, or heat and, you know, objects that you just have not come across. Yeah. So it's they might not have the expertise, but at least they have the ideas in the background and you can kind of go, well, if this works, yeah, let's do that. Well, maybe we should try this. Okay, let's test this. And so um, I like working with groups, uh, and I think I'll probably continue to do that as long as I can, um, which is good for a beginning conservator, I think.
0: Yeah, not bad. Have you found that conservation goals and ideals are uh, different uh, across different continents or... Are they similar? You know, like uh, minimal intervention,
3: aesthetic ideals, that sort of thing, or they're definitely different. <laughs> definitely different, and it, I think it also depends on where people are trained, um, and then it's a mixture of where they were trained, when they were trained, and uh, the cultural, the culture that they're now in, and the museum they're now in, or the the situation. I found a lot more, you know, a very minimal intervention, you know. With archaeological material, you leave the holes, you only do structural fills. You do those kind of things, and I've seen a lot more of not full restoration, but to complete the object. Let's say it's a pot. They'll complete the pot, but make sure the fills are known as fills. So it's it's this kind of meeting of the two where you can tell that these are not original, but the full would be done, whereas we would leave like a rim, you know, part of a rim off or a hole here and there. They would um, complete it. Okay. So it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit different, but I think it has to do, yeah, what society you're in what they're looking for in the museum, because an art museum... And the composition of the people who are working there. Exactly. So it's just, yeah, it's that good old phrase. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> it just depends.
0: Uh, do you uh, bring your own equipment and tools with you, or do you use what's applied
3: by... You were employing it at the time? It's a mixture. Um, I, working in guitar, I was working with computers and that kind of thing, so I wasn't really working on objects that much. Um, on the dig, uh, I kind of gave my boss a list of things that I thought might be useful or things I thought I needed or used last time to make sure they were out on site. And she actually tracked those down, got them, because uh, a lot of things are, when you're traveling abroad, they're really hard, like acetones, solvents, um, yeah, really chemicals, different. you can't get them. Um, you get from permits, etc. Exactly. You can't bring them into the country in some cases. I and, mean, you know, paraloids and stuff like that usually you can get in. It's not too big of a problem. It just depends on where you're going and what it looks like in your bag in the yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but... You know, solvents. No, no. you have to get somebody in the country, and um, knowing conservators in the country, you can actually get those supplies, uh, which is nice. So finding contacts in the country you're going to, is great. Plan ahead. I found is the number one thing to do, and I don't mean weeks. I mean three to six months ahead uh, to start getting materials. But I always bring my own tools, and probably I'll bring more of my own specialized tools, and um, you know, make sure I have scalpel blades and. You know, different things that I think if I only went a little bit of, like we requested fume silica and we got tons of it. Well, we only need a little bit. So those kind of things that are easy to pack, I probably would start bringing my own just to make sure in case we just needed a little bit here. We don't have to wait a several weeks to get it. Thank you so much, Kathy. That's all the questions I had.
0: Now, I think this interview um is... Uh was interesting in that it, it really talked about uh, the difficulties of, for example, uh, get getting supplies in a different country and how difficult it can be to uh, find trusted suppliers or to get anything in that you need. And the need to stay flexible, but also plan ahead quite meticulously because you might not yeah, be able to get in anything. Advance, yeah. yeah, so you might not be able to get anything, you know, with a couple of weeks notice, you need months to plan ahead. Or you know, conserving something in a desert, uh, which uh, is pretty, pretty fascinating to me.
1: I think, yeah, having having what she said about her toolkit um, of being her specialist tools was really interesting, because obviously, people have their own equipment, but it's so bulky, you know, even just a, a box of gloves can take up Far more space in your luggage than you might really care to take oh yeah with gloves
0: <laughs> I, I go see clients quite regularly so uh bringing your own just a couple of boxes a box of gloves is a massive pain in the bum sometimes and, and i don't travel internationally so uh yeah so i just go on a train which is fine uh but bringing bringing it with you on international travel and staying in hotel rooms and all that stuff gosh that is that's challenging
1: and the skills that she is developing as well in terms of you know simply interpersonal skills as she was saying and contacts of people all around the world is really amazing you know yeah I know you know abseiling is one thing being able (laughs) to keep keep good contacts and knowing knowing people and roots and where conservators are needed it's I think it's true freelancing isn't it when you you're not in one place to build a client base you're your client bases. you you are of, there to do a yeah. job the thing i found really extreme was the length of time of the of each project um of as in weeks not even months sometimes mm. um, and i was just thinking about how different that is to the way that i work and the way that i find that i really um prefer working i i need months and months to feel good and settled in and i feel like i develop over time but she is working on such a short Timescale that that she is doing all of that five weeks here, six weeks there. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really amazing and admirable. (laughs) Yeah, I'm
0: I'm not sure that will be for me. So I'm I'm really impressed with people who can do that.
2: I think what was interesting for me was that when Kathy was talking about instability, it wasn't just uh, the instability that comes from short-term contracts Mm -hmm. and not knowing how you're going to be able to source your tools and equipment. Um, but in a couple of cases, she was talking about political instability as well. Mm. Um, and it, working in a situation where what's happening elsewhere in the country might suddenly escalate and mean that you had to abandon your project and leave the country and so on. Yeah, um, And that, that's something that is so different from um, the kind of environment that most of us work in, in
1: museums. Yeah, we feel that we can, we we sort of know more or less what we're going to be doing in the next weeks, months, whatever, but to have the instability to not really, not really be aware of whether you're suddenly going to have to leave a place, that's really, it's quite scary. Though I found it interesting that she said she felt safe the entire time. Mm. Um, that's really good.
0: Yeah, I, I got the impression that she felt like, Um, employers were good at looking after people who came in to do the jobs which is really nice to hear and uh, now we're going to listen to our next interview uh, which is
4: with Sophie Rowe Today I'm talking to Sophie Rowe, conservator at the Polar Museum. Sophie has recently returned from a conservation project in the Antarctic You came back from Antarctica in January? January?
5: No, I went in January. You went in and January. I came back at the beginning of March. So I spent uh, about a month exactly on uh, Horseshoe Island, which is an island off the coast of the peninsula of Antarctica. I recommend everybody go and have a look at a map, actually, if you don't know where that is. But it's about 67 degrees south, so just south of the Antarctic Circle. Um, and it has on it a historic hut, which is one of six, that are managed by the United Kingdom Antarctic Heritage Trust henceforth referred to as UKAHT Um, and uh, we went there specifically to do essentially a survey of the state of the building and the artifacts in it so I feel that um, it's probably a bit of a extreme thing to suggest that it's extreme conservation because we didn't do very much in the way of treating we actually essentially looked at the state of it and did a kind of inventory of what's there. When I spoke to you before you said it wasn't so much extreme conservation as extreme
4: cataloguing
5: (laughs) extreme condition survey (laughs) yes what were the practical challenges you faced? It, so, what were not the practical... Every, every single thing about it is complicated because this is a place that's 9,000 miles away. Um, and so, for example, when you're thinking of, ahead of time about organising a, a fieldwork season in a place like that, you have to plan all of the tools that you're going to need and all the materials and all the food and your tents and your sleeping bags and absolutely everything you're going to need for working there because, essentially, you're out of touch with the world for that month that you're there Um, the way I got there was I went with the RAF on a flight from Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire which is an RAF uh, airbase down to the Falkland Islands and the Falkland Islands at Port Stanley have a warehouse which is used by British Antarctic Survey, mm-hmm. um, and that was where all of our stuff that we needed for this trip was uh, depoted. And so we had to go there and do. We spent a couple of days doing exhaustive inventory and checking and repacking and making sure that the bills of lading uh, were filled in because all the work that you do in the, in the Antarctic is covered by um, a essentially extraordinary number of permits you have to have permits to take things there and you have to have permits to take things away and you may not leave any rubbish and if you wish to dispose of uh well things that you know you produce from the toilet you have to have arrangements for that Um, um, so there was quite a lot of sort of um inventory and logistics at the point when we were in stanley Um, and then from stanley we were picked up by hms protector which is a naval ship Um, and UKHC are extremely well supported by HMS Protector. I think it wouldn't be possible for them to do a lot of their work without that backup, because we had a lot, we think we had about four or possibly four and a half tonnes of things that we had to take with us, so that included obviously our food, but also a lot of tools, um, plywood for making emergency repairs to the buildings, um, lots of roofing felt, which is extremely heavy. We had a lot of fuel, we had generators, so we had diesel and petrol, um, and we also had water, So lots and lots of really heavy stuff that we had to to take with us, and that's not something that you can put onto a cruise ship, even if a cruise ship were coming. We arrived, anyway, in uh, Marguerite Bay, which is the part of um, the uh, Antarctic Peninsula where Horseshoe Island is, and it is stunningly beautiful. There are mountains that come right down to the sea, and the feeling that you have when you're there is it's a bit like the High Alps, if you've ever been, where the mountains are very, very sharp, and there's beautiful ice all over them, and they look extraordinarily impenetrable, and then they come right down to the sea. So they're not very high, actually. They're often sort of five or 600 metres high, but they have a feeling of being much, much higher than that because they're so sort of inaccessible looking Um, and then obviously wonderful wildlife amazing birds whales seals penguins you know that kind of thing and that was really great Um, so we arrived on the 28th of january and we were supposed to land on horseshoe and there was just a lot of brash ice around the island which is sort of chopped up little bits of icebergs Mm -hmm. the icebergs are always breaking up and and there were lots of lumps and bumps of this and we couldn't take protector close up to the island because it's not deep enough so you would have to ferry everything backwards and forwards on small boats Um, and so they have three different boats they can use to help you get backwards and forwards but they're much smaller and none of them could really cope with the ice on that day so then we came back on the second day on the 29th and managed to find a place where we could land all of the equipment but it was about a kilometre from where we needed to be and this is an island that although there is a a historic hut on it and it's visited occasionally by tourists essentially there aren't paths and Mm. you know it's just ice and snow and rocks and so forth and then you are with this incredible heavy awkward stuff (laughs) that you have to schlep Across this terrain, we had to carry four and a half tons of. (laughs) Well, not quite all of it. We 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 prioritized um but there were quite a lot of things that we had to try and carry including mm-hmm. things like gas bottles a lot of our food so i walked backwards and forwards with about 20 kilos at a time many 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 times and the marines this is where the marines were just brilliant because they were competing with each other about who could carry the most <laughs> and they were saying things like, oh it's so heavy i can't get it onto my back if you just get it onto my back i'll carry it and then they were sort of yomp off carrying some improbable amount like 60 kilos of stuff which was and like gas bottle you know a full sized yeah. gas bottle and things like that extraordinary um and uh, so without them, I think we'd probably still be ferrying things because it was, there was an awful lot. The, first, the initial part where we landed was very um, sort of cliffy, and so there was a kind of human chain running between the boat and then the point where we could start separating off and, and carrying things. Um, And then the next day we were found that we were able to get much closer to our our proper site where we were going to be based, and um, and so they landed the rest of the stuff there. But that was a day where we had a lot of rain and sleet, and we all got super wet. And what was also lovely about the Marines was that this was just... By anybody's standards, you would say this is pretty grim. You know, we're hauling heavy stuff and it's horrible weather and it's really wet and it's grim. And the worse it got, the happier they were. And they were all sitting laughing and we were all eating this, you know, lovely pasta that they brought for us from the ship and in the sleet you know, with wet hands and everything else and getting really cold. But having a high old time because, you know, the worse the weather is, the better they like it, apparently. Was that the point at which you started to wonder what you'd let yourself in for? <laughs> I think it was a real eye opener about getting wet, actually. I mean, people asked me beforehand about how cold it was going to be and for the time of year I think people would anticipated that it would be about minus 5 at night and then maybe up to about 10 degrees in the daytime we've got almost in the time that I was there we had almost no snow but we did get sleet on that first day and actually that probably was the worst weather that we had on that day and in that time I soaked through all my gloves And then it's really difficult to dry anything because it's just not warm enough. And so this is why you have loads and loads of spares of things. But, um, yeah, it was an eye opener because once you've got wet clothes, it's suddenly much harder to get warm. Um, We were sleeping in um, two-man tents. We had a two-man tent each, which was lovely. And and then we also had a, a kind of working tent. So Michael, who was the carpenter on the expedition, I should probably introduce the people who were on the expedition. We were four, so me, conservator, never been to the Antarctic before. Then we had Liesl and Michael, who have both been working for UKHD for many years, doing uh, maintenance work on all of the huts that they have. So they run six huts, and Liesl and Michael have been going around all these different huts doing that kind of repair, emergency repair and making sure they don't blow down in wind every winter. It's extremely valuable work that they've been doing. Um, So they're both very, very experienced with the Antarctic. Um, And then the last person we had was Al Fastir, and he is actually the um, building's project manager at New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust. And New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust manage the, uh, the much more famous huts that Scott used, Chackleton, Borch Gravink. Uh, very recently they've had a campaign to work on the Edmund Hillary hut, which was used in the 1950s, a uh, trans-Antarctic expedition with Vivian Fuchs. So he's enormously experienced um, with working in these kinds of conditions, um, although the work that they do is all on the Ross Ice Shelf, or the majority of it's on the Ross Ice Shelf, so the terrain is completely different um and conservators might remember that there was for a period quite a a long number of seasons where people could go down and work on Mm -hmm. um and artifacts from those huts on the ice they actually had porter cabins set up on the ice and people spent the winter there and did the conservation treatments um And it would be great to be able to do something similar for UKHT, but in practice, I don't know how possible that is because we're talking about rocky islands as opposed to a nice flat ice shelf. So whether it's actually feasible to run the same kind of conservation project is one of the things that has to be decided now as a result of the work we've been doing. Um, But you were asking about uh, other sort of logistical aspects or difficulties there are in working in those conditions. And one of them is that... It's cold and things like batteries don't work very well. Mm. So I went, to <laughs> I went to make up some solution of uh, Clues LG. I, I wanted to do some uh, basic repairs to, to pieces of paper that were stuck to the walls that, went, that needed a bit of um, just tacking down and, and making safe. And uh, I went to make a solution of Clue LG and I, I had brought the, um, the weighing scales and I brought spare battery and everything else and I could not get them to work and I wore it inside my clothes for a day to see if I could warm it up and coax it into life and I couldn't so I ended up having to make my solution up you know in a best guess kind of way Mm -hmm. so it was sort of vaguely whatever percentage it was Um, and we had similar problems with the computers as well where you know the computers we had wouldn't accept charge unless you went around wearing them in your clothes for a while and I think it's something that's quite a well-known problem um, with cold weather working but it's when you actually you think about gathering a lot of information and trying to digitise it and then you have these kinds of issues it it does make it much more challenging to do. So did you have Um, to record everything with pencil and paper? Yeah, that is what I did and I'm now in the process of digitising it afterwards (laughs) Um, so that yes, is quite time consuming naturally
4: What about actually working in cold conditions? Um, I can imagine if your hands are
5: cold and and it's a... Yes, you go outside and jump up and down a lot (laughs) you do, I mean, because in the nature I think anyone who's done a condition survey knows mm-hmm. it's, it's not enormously physically active you know you actually if you're looking at artifacts within this historic hut I was trying to avoid moving things more than absolutely necessary um, because I was trying to leave things as much as possible kind of in situ so I wasn't moving around very much and I did get cold um, and so I would mm-hmm. just go outside and do some star jumps and try and warm up again and obviously wore, wore lots of clothes as well lots of hats I think I had two hats on at all times um, also because I couldn't wash properly so my hair became horrifying and I needed to cover it up <laughs> so but um, and the other thing is we ate so many meals we had four meals a day because well partly we worked about 12 hours a day we started working at about half past seven and finished about half past seven in the evening and then sometimes carried on into the evening doing computer work um, but yeah so we broke it up a bit by having unbridled sessions with peanut butter and crackers and chocolates and all sorts of things and uh, it was it was fun I enjoyed that part <laughs>
4: What do you have to do in the way of preparation? Um, You say the other members of your team had been down south before, but you hadn't.
5: So we had uh, in the UK in July, um, this is the July before we went down, we had a week where we did training. um, And quite a lot of this was um, involved meeting with the architects who are consulting on how the building should be managed. So one of the interesting questions is when interpreting this hut and the history of it for an audience of people coming down south... Um, at what point do you draw the line and say the history of this is now this is the history as opposed to the use because it's been used as a facility you know last year I expect people were in it using it for that but uh, I think yeah that still remains to be decided I mean a natural line could be drawn at the point when dogs stopped being used in the Antarctic which was in 1992 or you might take take the view that you want to kind of Present mostly its history in the 1950s and 60s when it was very actively used as a surveying base um, for mapping and uh, meteorological work and geological work in the peninsula. Sorry, you did ask me about the training, to go back to the training. (laughs) um, We had training in certain sort of quite practical things like ladder training and roof training and harness training in case we needed to get up onto the roof and making sure we could do that safely. we also met the architects and talked to them a lot about what they already knew about the building and then the kind of information they wanted to gather about the building. There were some quite sort of complicated conversations about asbestos because there's quite a lot of asbestos in the structure um, and part of the attic has actually been sealed off um, in a previous campaign um, in about five years ago. I think they came and sealed off part of the attic because there's loose asbestos insulation up there which is clearly not very good for you. We also talked about the kind of information we wanted to gather from the artefact survey, which is what I was involved in. Um, so when I went out, nobody knew exactly how many artefacts there were, and there was a guess that it might be 10,000 or it might be fewer than that, it might be just 4,000 or so. Nobody really quite knew. So it was we were laying bets all the way through how many it would end up being. Um, and... It is a bit of a guess because quite a lot of the artefacts are things like tins full of screws. And so you kind of guess how many (laughs) screws there are in the box Um, because there wasn't very much time to gather all this information. But the best guess at the moment is it's in the region of 7,750 Did you manage to look at all of them? I took photographs of everything. Wow. um, But some of those things have to be kind of recorded as um, groups. So if you have a shelf with an awful lot of food tins on it, you'll tend to regard them as a group of things rather than give each tin an individual identity. So all of those things were um, identified and also labelled. Um, and the labelling was something where I was very keen to try and do that in such a way that it wouldn't be too intrusive because it would be a great shame to go into what is a very atmospheric. You go in and you feel as if you walked back in time. It's lovely. So all of that atmosphere is there. And I think if you went in and then just saw hundreds of little, little white labels on everything, it would very much detract from that so I was quite careful to conceal the labels. so although everything is labelled it's uh, it's often labelled where you have to be a bit artful and look for them because like lots of Bakelite switches with labels underneath where they're not very obvious and round the back of the tins and all that sort of thing so I hope that it, it's been done in a way where it's not too obvious to anyone else.
4: How did you label them? I think um, there's been a bit of work done by your predecessor at the Polar Museum on um, sort of labelling yes. and techniques for yes, objects in right. very cold... Conditions? Did, did you find that you were able to label them with
5: sort of B72 and ink? No, no, right. <laughs> I didn't do that. Um, so one of the things that is uh, a problem with B72 is that the acetone doesn't always go off. And because I actually had to do this work in the cold. So when you're working in the cold and you have no option to warm things up, you, you sort of have to accept that paranoid isn't going to work. And I did do quite a lot of testing before I went out. Um, so uh, NZHT have also done a thing where they've used Tyvek soaked in Paraloid, which they've stuck on with Paraloid. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was worried about using Paraloid, I ended up experimenting with Laskar, mm-hmm. um acrylic dispersions. So I had 498HV and 360HV. Actually, 360, I think, is no longer available, which is a great pity because it's the one that works the best <laughs> for this kind yes. of situation. Because it has, I'm assuming this is why, but I think because it has a a uh, low glass transition temperature and it's quite tacky at room temperature it's actually still nice and tacky even at five degrees or so which was about the temperature i was applying it at um, and because it's water-based and i was writing on the tyvek with um an alcohol-based pens archival pens um i didn't actually have to do the whole thing of soaking the tyvek in paraloid first mm-hmm. because it wasn't coming through so it was perfectly possible just to write the tyvek label and then stick it on using the acrylic dispersion um, so that's what I ended up doing, um, except where I had objects where I knew that I was labelling a group and that they were eventually going to be separated out. And there I've just tied on labels rather than mm. do a more permanent kind of labelling. But I have heard from New Zealand side that sometimes the paraloid labels do come off because the TG is not quite low enough, if yes. you what sort I of mean. Um, I think it gets too brittle yes. at some of the temperatures that they experience. But the Ross shelf has very different conditions from what we have. In the peninsula, significantly further south for a start.
4: Did you find other areas where you had to modify the sorts of treatments you carried out or the kinds of materials you were
5: able to use because of the conditions you were working in? Well, because I wasn't really doing conservation treatment as such, it didn't really come up. Um, And uh, also, the condition survey part was. A very very simple condition survey. It wasn't purely a stability score. We were scoring between one and four, where four are things that are really really urgently in need of conservation and, and are actively deteriorating. there was a particularly amusing one, which was a, um, a tin of salt, where the tin had just absolutely disintegrated and you were left with literally a pillar of salt <laughs> on the kitchen shelf, with the kind of rust in a sort of ring around it. That was definitely a four. Um, and then uh, quite, I, I think the majority of things that are in a bad way are metals. Um, There's quite a lot of surprising amount of rubber. There are lots of rubber boots and waders and things like that. And then quite a lot of rubber insulation on things. Because this is the 1950s, you're getting some early plastics creeping in. All the door handles are made of Bakelite. Mm-hmm. Um, Bakelite is very stable but even the, the more worrying kind of rubbery p- compounds are doing fantastically well because it is so cold and of course that's one of the things people suggest for those materials is to keep them in the cold to reduce the oxidation so those um, and textiles and wood are all doing surprisingly well and a lot of the paper's not in too bad a condition but because it's inherently vulnerable that's the other, the other material where it probably is the stuff that needs some attention sooner rather than later but the metals for sure are by far the biggest challenge.
4: What about the environment there? You mentioned that you'd had sleet um, and it's obviously very cold. Is it quite humid at times as well? Well, this is something
5: where we still haven't got Data. data loggers are there, but we don't have data from them at this point to say. But it's possible to, to see from the condition of artefacts in the building where you're getting issues with moisture. So, for example, there's one room where there was a lot of mould um, and it is a space which underneath, uh, the building's actually built onto sort of stilts at one end. Um, Because the ground slopes away. And uh, people have put an awful lot of bits and bobs under there, and also it tends to get, it's on the side of the building and it gets drift. So the snow is blown around and then it all sort of just settles there and becomes a great kind of icy tongue next to the building. And then we've also got places where you've got clear holes in the fabric of the building, um, so around doors and windows and so forth, and where moisture is coming in from those, you're getting a lot more problems with rust and, you know, well, also to some extent, a bit of rot in the wood is creeping in as well.
4: so is there anything you can do to mitigate that to sort of help preserve the objects better in the longer term or do you just have to sort of work with what the conditions are now secure the fabric of the building as much
5: as you can but basically leave it as it is it's it's a very interesting question because if you were not working nine thousand miles away with um, (laughs) (laughs) and also in a continent where you know there's an enormous amount of legal framework i mean i mentioned earlier about You know, the the whole issue of waste and the impact that you make in the course of your activities on the environment. Um, And all of that legislation that exists is very strongly geared towards protecting the environment. And so introducing systems that need a lot of power to be spent, I mean, you know, electrical power from whatever, is is just difficult. Um, Realistically, I think you have to reckon on the most passive methods you can um, just because also things break down and then what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, there's nobody there keeping an eye on it. There's nobody yeah. physically present on that Island very regularly. It's visited. Uh, we have something like in that month, five visits from cruise ships, um, but actually relatively few make it that far South. Yeah. So um, that's a really interesting question, but it is obvious that keeping your building secure and weather tight is a hugely important aspect of you know what you can do. Um,
4: intrigued by the sort of status of this building I mean obviously by carrying out a an inventory and starting to label the objects um, you're starting to treat it more as a museum Mm. um, or possibly a monument I suppose but as you say it's still used sometimes as a refuge and presumably would
5: still be if people were in dire need yes it's, this for me i have to say professionally has been one of the most interesting parts of the project um it's actually the hut and the six well, all six huts that are run by ukht are designated as historic sites and monuments um under the antarctic treaty and have been to, i think it's 1996 so but despite the fact that they are historic sites and monuments they have been used as refuges up until you know quite recently but the understanding now is very much that we're going to try and avoid that unless it's absolutely absolutely necessary and try and understand these more as historic sites and treat them as just as you would go to a national trust property you wouldn't then go and sleep on one of the beds and go and use the privy <laughs> theoretically you really, you wouldn't you wouldn't contemplate it and i think it's quite interesting when you talk to people who don't come from a conservation background about yeah. these huts even though they're only from the 1950s When you put it like that, when you say, if this was the National Trust, you would know how to behave. Yeah. It is sort of like the National Trust. It's just a small trust, but it is essentially that is what they're aiming for. Uh, It isn't just about how the huts are used now, but also how they're managed and how they're maintained. And one of the things that's come in um, with the sort of recent move towards essentially abiding by the spectrum standard and the accreditation standard that we use in the UK. I mean, we're not technically bound by it because it's offshore, but actually that's those are the standards we're trying to work to with managing this site. Um, I think if you come from outside that world, that museum world, it can look arbitrary and awkward and possibly in some ways impractical to try and impose that standard on a site of this kind. And the people who've been involved in you know, managing them up until now... I think, it, you know, it's not always easy for them to quite see where where it all comes from. And I think they generally do get it. And I think if you have done it that way and are now being asked to do it in a different way, it can feel like an implicit criticism of what you did before. And that's really important to understand if they hadn't done what they did in the past, there wouldn't be anything to preserve. I think, you know, before you go any further, you have to understand those previous maintenance efforts are not undermined at all by the fact that we've now shifted a bit to a, a different approach
4: so what's likely to happen next now you've done the inventory you've identified some objects that are in need of conservation yes
5: <laughs> <laughs> well i do hope very much that some conservation will happen i don't i think that uh the plan at the moment for UKHT is to do similar exercise with some of their other huts where they also need to do a kind of full inventory and um you know stock take and also uh, understanding of the building so once those things have happened then i think they'll be in a position to plan their conservation efforts and whether it's possible to run them in tandem with the surveys or not i think is something that is uh, you know still being discussed because we've only only very recently got back with all of our information <laughs> and there's there's obviously a lot of decision making and planning to go ahead so as i understand it the the next concrete thing that will happen is that we'll do a very similar survey i say we i'm not sure if it'll be me but uh, a similar survey will be done at Stonington, which is uh, about not very far away from Horseshoe. And then after that, you know, we'll have to see where, where they go with it. But, um, yeah.
4: So you've come back to work at the Polar Museum, which yes. is your day job, um, in a post that's funded by UK AHD. Do you feel that your experience of actually going to the Antarctic continent has made you see the day job differently but
5: yes i think i I definitely would say that working in the Polar museum for you know a few years before going to the antarctic and and particularly because we did a a big antarctic cataloguing project of all the antarctic artifacts that we have in the Polar museum collection Um, and so i felt oh i've seen so many of those andrew lusk onions tins (laughs) it's really lovely to see them all in their context Um, and also i think to have a better appreciation of some of the people who you meet around the institute who i don't think i'd ever really thought very much about what they were doing in the Antarctic, and now I feel these are people I must talk to and learn everything they can tell me about life with the Falkland Island Dependency Survey um, in the 1950s and 60s. So um, that's really great and really enriching, and I think it's a fantastic opportunity as well to to flesh out that story. You know, in, in in my back in a long time ago, I used to work on Egyptian artifacts, and you never get the chance to ask an ancient Egyptian anything, <laughs> and so you really it makes you appreciate that possibility tremendously. Um, I think coming back to the day job after an experience like that is uh, it's harder than you would imagine <laughs> because they've had a tremendous adventure um, and it's an enormous privilege also to essentially camp on a desert island for that kind of time in that sort of environment. It's uh, really a very, very special experience um, and I loved it. I really loved it. But uh, yes, I think... It makes me also very grateful for things like, you know, even in, in a relatively small museum without great resources, we do have a weather-tight building. We have decent environmental control. I can turn on dehumidifier if I feel I need to. Um, you know, so many, many things seem so much more straightforward in a way, yeah. and that it, that's good. It's, it's quite nice to feel that you've got quite an easy life in a museum <laughs> by comparison. Thank you very much for talking to The C Word. Thank you.
1: So I love that interview. I thought it was really really interesting and I think I learned quite a lot about the different projects um and my my very first impression of her first her first part of what she was saying was um anything where you have to involve the army or similar <laughs> groups <laughs> of people yeah. yeah you know that it's a different kind of project to others <laughs> um you need burly men possibly yeah. armed to like yeah, exactly <laughs> help you lug things. 60 kilos oh my god um I yeah I that is an amazing amazing feat and it put me in mind of um of the Dave and Attenborough the making of um filming yeah uh, where they where they have to move all of their equipment to places mm. where there are no people and no, no access and it's it's all um very very hard so uh, in my mind's eye as she was as she was describing it I was thinking oh wow yeah I can imagine rocks and penguins and well <laughs> that obviously is entirely alien to me um it was it sounded a bit like almost being in space that you're so yeah the access is so hard and you've got to you know take your waste with you if you if you've got too many people yeah. it's just it's amazing the the project yeah. there and the um the levels to which they are maintaining the landscape is is amazing
0: yeah absolutely i
1: enjoyed the uh uh
0: the real value of pencil and paper <laughs> that came across when when you can't trust your laptop to charge or turn on because it's very cold um but yeah it's yeah so again this reliance on technology uh it might not work out uh in extreme circumstances um and i just i just i kind of like that they had to revert to the traditional methods that would have been used by the people very much who built these huts for example
1: such an exciting challenge isn't it to think right what don't I have this is what I can do it's really really cool it's very MacGyver conservation (laughs) uh, which I love
2: (laughs) I did ask Sophie um, after the interview um, if there was anything that they'd forgotten and that they wished they'd brought but she said no
0: no. (laughs) (laughs) disappointingly they'd planned well (laughs) I would have been I mean, all you'd regrets. to
2: get there and then realize that you've forgotten your pencils.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: no pencil sharpener. Um, no. But just the sheer amount of planning that went into this. Then um, yeah, they uh, you, they they planned pretty thoroughly and it and it worked out. um, um the thing about pencils reminds me of this apocryphal story um, that's often told uh, um, during the sort of most intense race days where the russians and the americans were competing to see who could uh, get furthest into space and so on and um you you often see this thing about how the uh, ballpoint pens basically don't work in space oh yes and the americans spent millions of dollars developing a special pen <laughs> that will work in space of course and they did goes the russians just took a pencil um, <laughs> <and> actually, <laughs> i want that to be true is that true and i would love that to be true it's not true oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can't use pencils in space either because apparently you get lots of graphite dust and yeah and the problem there
0: will be that gets in everywhere which is bad
2: yeah oh. absolutely so it's a great story but it's sadly, a brilliant it's story true. but it did so it kind of reminded me of that but it also made me think, well, actually, um, and this ties in with what you were saying, Chloe, uh, about it being like uh, being in space. Has there been any conservation in space yet? Oh. Um, that, that was
0: <laughs> I was gonna say cool. conservators in space. Now that's something I wanna see. Um
3: yeah, yeah I, I, I
0: I don't I don't think oh, there's sorry, ever sorry. been an astronaut trained conservator yet. Um I'm so not up for trying. <laughs> and I uh, yeah, now I'm thinking do, you know how they uh, technically go into space with these uh, fancy flights now for like billionaires Oh uh, yeah. could, could you do a bit of experimental uh, conservation <laughs> in that environment where you're in zero gravity <laughs> <laughs> oh that would just be know, adhesive everywhere, everywhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> but um, you wouldn't want to spill your, your yeah. cellulose there would yeah, you quite. worse than normal yeah
0: uh, but yeah, that was a really, really interesting interview. And I was also really impressed with how much, uh, kind of foot traffic they got. Like, three cruise ships a day?
1: <laughs>
2: Jesus, <laughs>
1: that's quite a lot of people. I don't think we get that sometimes in Greater Manchester. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> that's a lot of people.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I was just kind of impressed with that because I kind of thought I hear someone who visits Once in a Blue Moon when a cruise ship happens to pass by, not, this is a, this is a tour stop where, yeah we actually actively offload people and go, go have a look at the thing. It's the only thing to look
1: at. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So I'm always thinking about hazards, obviously. Um, not in a scaredy cat kind of way, in a in a collections kind of way. And I found it um, really interesting what she was saying about asbestos. Um, with asbestos not only being in, um, obviously we've got the integral part of the building, but then the objects that they have. And it made me think that they seem, that project seems to be, you know, in the middle of nowhere, better at asbestos management than some museums are in this country. It's such a sort of specific problem um, to have that it's, you know,
0: quite specialist knowledge. Do you also think that you're more hazard away in an extreme environment than you might be in a kind of everyday environment where you're so used to everything anyway that it might not occur to you that something is a hazard? Or that something is worth taking seriously?
1: Maybe, but I, I'd counter that to be honest. With I mean, obviously, I've I've been trained specifically on quite a lot of different specific types of hazards, asbestos being one of them. And I think in that situation, if I hadn't been trained in asbestos um, identification, my priorities would be not hazards in there it, it would be like my personal safety well, and the group's yeah. personal safety <laughs> yeah. and am I going to freeze to death <laughs> oh yeah is that, a penguin going to eat me <laughs>
0: <laughs> only under extreme circumstances
1: <laughs> I don't think I'd be suited to this sort of this sort of project it's amazing it is amazing but I it could amazing. not I don't think I could do it myself personally I'm I mean adventures are great and stuff but I'm i You're good. I'm good. (laughs) So yeah, I'm I'm really really glad we
0: heard from Sophie. That's really good. So I think some overall themes from both of these has been the importance of planning and the importance of thinking on your feet and being flexible.
2: I think because conservation is so new, lots of conservators are, in a way, carrying out extreme conservation anyway Mm. um, because objects are so different and they keep bringing new challenges all the time. Um, so even if you've treated a similar, apparently similar object before, um, there's no guarantee that what worked then is going to work this time and so on. And so I think a lot of the time, conservators, particularly in some areas of conservation, are having to kind of make it up as they go along and that and they're really kind of at the cutting edge of, of treatment and so on and collection care in some sense that is kind of extreme actually a lot of what we do hasn't been tested before um hasn't really been used before tried before whatever i'm just i'm just making the case as a kind of uh, desk jockey yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) no quite
0: no no (laughs) what we we do is also amazing
2: yeah exactly (laughs) and extreme we can be extreme
1: uh, without getting too cold or wet (laughs) i think is that what you're saying
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah basically but i, I mean in, in some ways it is it's it's not like doing something that's been tried before there is an element of uh, kind of uncertainty and danger as
0: well as usual if you have any comments questions or corrections please let us know we love hearing from you patreon shout out thanks so much to arena for joining us on patreon Thanks for listening. We're The C-Word, and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiasen. Special thanks to Sophie Rowe and Kathy Tully. You can check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at the C-Word Podcast, or simply email us at Podcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This has been a Wooden Dice production.
5: Boom! Yeah. Woo.
0: I love that I still keep those in.